Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Alex Franchi, who is Chair of Computational Medicine at the University of Leeds. His focus area of research includes computational medicine with emphasis on computational medical imaging, image-based biomechanics, machine learning, deep learning, and big health data analytics. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Thank you, Dylan. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So you have some, uh, you have a couple of recent papers which I found really fascinating. Uh, one, first one is uh, in silico trial of intracranial flow diverters replicates and expands insights from conventional clinical trials. Uh, and related to that is virtual endovascular treatment of intracranial aneurysms, models and uncertainty. So, so you say the cost of clinical trials is ever increasing. In silico trials rely on virtual populations and interventions simulated using patient specific models and may offer a solution to lower these costs. Uh, I have to tell you, Alex, when I was reading through, uh, I didn't read it in, in full, but I was skimming through the papers. Uh, it brought uh, a lot of memories back. I was involved in, on the engineering side, a lot of FEM, CFT modeling in the, in the 80s uh, of large systems like nuclear power plants and automobiles. Uh, and in the 90s, I was at Pfizer um, involved in the R&D process uh, all the way from discovery into market and so fully aware of the clinical trial cost component um, and now I have an AI company that uh, does sort of machine learning deep learning work in in the healthcare space so uh, I have to say when I was in the, the pharmaceutical company in the 90s we were talking about in silico clinical trials and uh, when this topic was brought up uh, the the response was, we have been doing clinical trials this way for 100 years, and we have been extremely success successful. There is really no need to think about anything else. Um, and uh, I couldn't win that battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that costs continue to increase. Uh, the, 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 the last metric I saw was, if you think about all the attrition in the R&D process, it takes about 1.7, 1.8 billion to bring a product to market with all the all the personal costs and clinical trials costs involved. And so you have a fascinating idea here that you have been you have been working on for a while and, and you have uh, you continue to do. So you want to talk a bit about these two papers and you know what's the underlying premises and what your successes have been so far? Yeah, great, with pleasure. So, Jill, um, the, the second paper is actually more like a review publication that what it tries to do is to, to give a bit of um, an overview of the opportunities to use computational models in the context of brain aneurysms devices. Um, and the, the first one is actually the, the result probably of about 10, 15 years of work in multiple ways to get to that point, which is kind of the first... Um, 
in, in our view, one of the first in silico trials that has been done with certain scale in, in the medical device area, but at the same time, probably the, the only one that we know of that has done comparisons against three conventional trials in the same device so that you could understand the, the, the differences between them. So <clears throat> maybe if I start by the second one, which is a bit more setting the stage. Um, so let me first explain what is a brain aneurysm. So this is um, in, in, in the brain, we have a, a certain system of vessels that feed the brain itself. <clears throat> and most of these, um, one important part of this, this system is what is called the, the circle of Willis, which is a very interesting um, system that we have in the brain um, that has circular form because the idea is that if you have a certain occlusion it's kind of at the at the center of, of the brain. And if you have an occlusion from one of the branches, you also have recirculation through the other side. And that somehow prevents the brain as a critical organ to, to potentially die of... of so evolutionary, evolutionary risk management process, so to speak. Indeed. Exactly. And, and that circle of will is from there. There's a lot of other vessels that then branch off and sort of feed the rest of the, the brain that you could imagine as an sponge that you're sort of penetrating through vessels and smaller capillaries. Now, it turns out that these aneurysms love to grow in the circle of Willis and particularly run bifurcations of these, these vessels. <clears throat> and an aneurysm is an enlargement of the vessel, like a ballooning, that there are many explanations about why they, they occur. Some people think that it's a degenerative process of the flow. Uh, induced by the flow, some other think that there is a genetic predisposition, some others, um, you know, have other theories, but somehow they end up ballooning. And the problem is that if they are left unattended, they can burst and generate uh, fundamentally a, a hemorrhagic stroke, right? So hemorrhagic strokes are about 20% of all the strokes. Uh, the other type is what is called an ischemic stroke which is when you have a vessel that is collapsed or closes, either because of a, of a stenosis, which is a narrowing of the vessel, as opposed to an aneurysm, which is an enlargement, um, or, or because of, you know, whatever, whatever other reason. Um, so, so we have these balloons, <clears throat> and there is multiple ways of treating them. One way to treat them, that was kind of the first way to treat them, was to do a craniotomy, so basically open the skull, and then put a clip, literally a metal clip, and the neck of the aneurysm. So what you do is you, you avoid that the part of the balloon, which is the thinner part, could potentially burst and, and produce a stroke. Mm -hmm. While um, later, some people say, well, you know, this is a very invasive surgery that requires, uh, you know, quite a long time of recovery after the surgery and a number of days of hospitalization. So people start coming up with ideas of doing minimal invasive. And most of the minimal invasive approaches fundamentally do a small incision in, in the groin and they insert a catheter that goes through endovascular path all the way from the groin all the way to the brain. So you can imagine there is there what a meter and a, a, meter and a half of catheter that you don't have direct vision, you do that under image guidance. Now, from this family of devices, there is a number of them. There is coils, which was the first family. These are literally like curly pieces of metals that you can insert in the aneurysms under image guidance, and they fill the aneurysm. And what you produce is a reduction of the flow supply. And as a consequence, um, that flow supply, um, when, when you reduce the flow, the flow stagnates and you produce a clot. You coagulate the blood, and that in itself acts as a closing of the vessel. So all these endovascular devices, fundamentally, they're trying to promote coagulation. But you need to do that selectively within the aneurysm and not within the, the vessel, because otherwise you generate one of the other strokes, the ischemic one. So one way is to do it with coils, and these coils, you you sort of, um, they have some, some memory, shape memory, and they're done from materials which are biocompatible, and they fill the aneurysm, they sort of generate like a small... Um, um, you know, sort of wiring up in that area. And then you can do through uh, an electrical process, you can detach them and then you pull out basically the, the um, you pull the, the, the guide wire and the catheter and then you leave only the coil inside. Then other people said, well, what about if we, instead of putting these coils that are a bit problematic when you have wide neck aneurysms because they could come out, 
what if, if we put a stent and and we sort of reconstruct the lumen with a stent and the first attempts were done with uh, stents which were a bit like the coronary artery stents <clears throat> that, that have a very open cell and then but and then they were not so effective but they could be used in conjunction with coils to actually maintain the coils in place um, and then other people say, well, why don't we take the coil, the, the stents, and we make it finer, the struts, so the, the wires, so the, the density is much um, higher. And as a consequence, we don't need the coils at all because the, the, the high porosity of this sort of metal wire frame will reduce the flow and produce the same effect in the aneurysm. So all of these different therapies are, I, I'm almost walking you in time, on how they've been developed. There is other techniques. There are people who have developed hydrogels, um, coils, which also have some substance that promotes coagulation. But fundamentally, all of them, what they're trying to do is reduce the blood flow, promote coagulation, and reconstruct the lumen of the vessel, right? Sort of, a, it's all plumbing, some sort of a plumbing process, so to speak. It, it is. In fact, sometimes we joke <laughs> with, some of, with some of our clinical colleagues saying, you know, you're essentially sort of, you know, plumbers. But but it is it's really impressive to see the because um, these aneurysms can be very small it can be sometimes two or three millimeters sometimes they can be twenty millimeters um, and you know they are very sophisticated interventions um, and you know there is multiple of these devices and the question one of the questions is starting to you know go into the direction of in silico trials is how do you know which of those is best how do you know for a particular individual <clears throat> which one is best. And how do you know when you are given three devices that a new device that you came up with is going to be better than the competitor's one? Or if you are developing those devices, how do you know for each of the multiple design parameters that you have for the device, which is the optimal, the optimal one? So what that second paper fundamentally does is trying to overview the literature and also um, put a bit of emphasis in the importance of the uncertainty quantification and uncertainty modeling. Um, which is basically the fact that a lot of the variables we we cannot control because we can control very much the ones that are part of the device itself, but not so much the ones that had to do with the um, physiological conditions that this device experiences or the interaction of the device with the wall. And particularly when you think that we are getting good at making these devices and therefore they are being put in people who are younger and younger, and sometimes these devices could stay in the value for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. So how do we know the long-term response of those devices now that we are able to put that earlier on and last for that long, when perhaps we don't even know how the physiology of that patient will look 10 years, 20 years ago, because maybe when that is implanted, the person doesn't have diabetes or maybe yet doesn't have hypertension, but those things may kick in later in the life of that patient. So, so, it is, um, Alex, it, so for my own understanding, so this is sort of an optimization question, given different type of materials, shape, size, um, location, and so on. There's an optimization question, right? What is the best, best thing to do? Um, in, in physical systems, we can do this very easily. Um, you know, with uh, design an aircraft wing or something like that. Uh, we don't do wind tunnel tests anymore. We, we do numerical modeling uh, of those things. And this has always been a question in my mind for 30 years. Why don't we do this in, in biological sciences? And, and that's where you're heading, I think, right? Absolutely. And, and it's, you know, if we could do this with, with the slides and with visuals, I will show you, um, you know, one of my favorite slides is one where I show a car in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, now and the Teslas, right? And you see <laughs> this, this beautiful evolution of these automobiles and you say, look, the product is much better and nicer, right? But let me now show the process by which we produce those products as well. And you then go and you realize it's literally what you were saying. We don't do wind tunnels. We have aerodynamic simulations and we don't do as often you know, crash tests of the car against the wall, we can do virtual crashes as well. And we are now using AI, you know, with autonomous driving. So why these technologies of virtual prototyping, virtual, um, you know, um, design uh, of simulations of intelligent, <clears throat> you know, design are 
used in other sectors for as long as you know we remember, while in this particular area, which is probably the most mission critical that you could imagine, is, is not being done. Now, I think there are multiple answers to that question. And, and, and one that I think is, is quite important is that it's very, it's very different the, the, the design considerations in a sense. Like in a, I think most of the times in a, in a um, sort of human-made product, you tend to, to look a lot for design for tolerance and design for performance. While in the medical domain, um, this is also the case. We want to maximize clinical outcome, which is a performance measure. But first, it's very difficult to define an optimization function in biological systems. Um, and, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but let me leave it for there at the moment. Yeah. Then the other thing is the system is evolving. So it's difficult to design for tolerance because even if you would do a patient-specific device, it may no longer be relevant two years down the line because the person has, has changed a number of things, right? So what we what I think is we need to be developing devices for resilience. We need to be developing systems that are resilient more than systems that are necessarily accurate or, or to a given tolerance. Um, so systems that de they do not depend so much on how you actually, for instance, implant a device. Let, let me give you two examples. Yeah. These stents that I was talking about, they are put in as a guide wire. So you have only a few degrees of maneuver to place them. And one typical problem is you need to put the you know the, the catheter in a particular position, which is somehow aligned to the neck of the aneurysm, and then you do the release. But two different clinicians will not necessarily put it exactly in the same place. And even the same clinician doing this multiple times may end up in different positions. So could you design design devices that are un, that are insensitive to that possible error? So if you could model the position in error because you can model with haptic systems, for instance, you know, the, the position and with 3D tracking systems, the position of the catheter, can we estimate that and develop systems that are, you know, devices that are not depending on that? For instance, the first devices that were used, the first stents were actually coronary stents that were repurposed for the brain. But then because they have open cell, what people found is that depending on the particular rotation angle in which you release them, you can have different outcomes, mm -hmm. which when you think about that was pretty obvious, um, and you could have figured that out through simulations, but probably at that point there were other considerations like, you know, the regulatory pathway is a lot simpler because it's a repurposing rather than a complete new device, right? Um, but another example is <clears throat> coils, the coils that I was mentioned before. You might be very well putting between, say, five, six coils to 30 coils. Each of those is about a thousand pounds. So it's not a small decision whether you put two or three more or less from a cost point of view. But also what we've shown is that, and it's very difficult to plan, where do you put calls? It's just completely like an stochastic, right, um, position. But what we found in some of our simulation studies <clears throat> is that what matters is to achieve a certain filling rate of the aneurysm. So filling rate is the volume of metal you put over the volume of the aneurysm. And clinicians roughly have, interventional radiologists have it difficult to put more than 25 to 30% of filling rate. It's, it's operationally difficult to do. But what we found is that if, that for every patient, there is an optimal packing rate beyond which if you put more calls, it doesn't make a difference to the flow. You might overpressurize aneurysm, the aneurysm, so it may make a problem with the rupture. But if you put aneurysms, sorry, you put calls below that number, below that packing rate, <clears throat> you actually have a pattern of flow that is very dependent on the way you put the coils. So you have this optimal, that is, too much can be overpressurized, too few can leave you with a very operator-dependent success rate. And we found that about 10 years before we did that work, there was a clinical study where in a small subset, they, found, they, they got found, uh, findings that were very consistent with this. And what we now have is a tool that you can optimize the, the packing rate on a patient-specific manner. So sometimes the, the optimal is not even an optimal of the device. It's a combination of the device plus the whole procedure as a system, like cho choosing how many you need to insert. 
So that that makes it very challenging, right? So um, personalized medicine, we have been talking about personalized medicine forever, uh, but the, the pharma model is still mass-produced, single-dose medications for everybody. Uh, but every individual is different. Uh, in this case, it's extremely critical, uh, as you say. Um, so there's, there's a, it's a sort of an interaction between patient and the device. I was also thinking, Alex, the other technology that is rapidly advancing is robotics. So, so you talked about resilience. I wondered, you know, so we can expect some sort of an error um, in the insertion process. Uh, but if robotically controlled mechanisms can self-correct after having realized that error, then there could be some possibility there too, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, in fact, it's, it's interesting, but if you look at what they call Industry 4.0, most of the technologies in this space are the same that in, in, in healthcare with, with all the adaptations. Robotics is one of them. So we, we are... We are working with a, a colleague here in Leeds, well, a couple of colleagues, both David Jen, who is a, a professor in surgery, and, and Pietro Valdastri, who is a professor in robotics in Leeds, to develop systems which are more autonomous so that you use vision to, uh, so this is more in endoscopic surgery, so vision to identify, um, for instance, flaps of certain organs that need to be cut or removed from the, the, the point of view, and then develop artificial intelligence algorithms that can guide that that um, endoscope to that position and then manipulate the removal and the, the moving around. Um, this is a still, you know, it's a, it's a developing area. Um, I think there is, is still a lot of evidence to be gathered uh, that you can let these algorithms loose, so to say, on the run. But, um, but I think they can be, there is also efforts where people have used these visual cues or these visual uh, feedback mechanisms to control tremor, for instance, in patients, in, in, in the surgeons, so that you minimize, you sort of enhance the capabilities of the surgeon. So they are still under control, but you, you sort of compensate with a control system, potential, you know, tremors that, that, that sometimes appear. Um, the other thing we've been um, considering as well is could you use, for instance, um, this idea of in silico trials by, for instance, developing new endoscopes where you could have a library of anatomical models of the gut tract, for instance, and where you, you simulate the insertion of the endoscope and what sort of uh, occlusions or bendings might be required that may guide you in terms of the material properties or the, 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 the performance properties of, of the endoscopes from a, from a maneuverability point of view, for instance. So, that brings me a bit back to the to the the first paper to now the one that we published earlier in the year in in nature communications and that paper i think is is seminal in our group because um although probably there is about 30 to 40 journal publications behind getting to that result where we develop different components and validated them it's kind of the first time we managed to put all together and show if you have all of those components, you know, things that you can, can do. So in this case, what we did was, um, <clears throat> so we wanted to show that if we did an in silico trial, that I will define in a moment exactly what it is, this could be equivalent to and reproduce the results of a conventional trial. So first, what is an in silico trial? An in silico trial is a virtual experiment. Any trial in the end is a model, right? So you do trials because to get regulatory approval and to also guide your, your innovation process, you need to gather first evidence, scientific evidence in the bench. So you might put a device in a machine that does, you know, bending tests to, to look at, uh, you know, reliability and, 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 and fatigue of these devices. Then because you don't want it to break just because it's weak or, or when it's subjected to multiple cycles of the cardiac cycle or, 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 or walking, if it's a, a bone implant, for instance, then you, you put that into, you go to animal testing, and this is mostly to test biocompatibility and whether, you know, there is going to be any, 
any potential rejection or whether there is biological responses that are triggered that you don't want. And again, an animal model is a model, it's a simplification, right? And then you go to do your first inhuman testing, which is probably in people that don't have any other alternative treatment as a way to, to sort of provide a, a, you know, a last resource. And then when you gain some confidence in the device, you might then go to larger studies. But even the most large trials, the largest trials we know, is you know in 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 certain domains where there is a large volume of patients, maybe you know a few thousands of subjects. This is the very biggest. Um, that is a still very small when you then go and put it big time, you know, in the whole population. So there is always things that you haven't anticipated that will potentially happen, and those are that's why you have all these post-marketing surveillance studies where what you try to do is follow up and 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 see for complications and try to understand that. So there is a life cycle of the innovation process of a device. And as an aside, Alex, I saw a paper a few years ago that the therapeutic index of a product um, efficacy over to uh, toxicity is the highest on the day of approval. <laughs> and then as, as more data come in from, from the real world, the therapeutic index continue to decline. And, and my pet peeve has been that the statistical measures that we use in this clinical trials, the p-value, the, the statistical measures, are really based on the nuts and bolts automobile building industry <laughs> from 100 years ago. We know it doesn't quite work in humans. Every human is different. Um, but, uh, but that is what the process is forcing, right? And that, that has lot, big implications for cause of clinical trials too. Absolutely, and 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 you mentioned it at the beginning. They are very, very, very expensive. Like is a, a clinical trial for a cardiovascular device is, is easily between eighty and and hundred million dollars uh, to run. So, so so here is what we did in that second paper. So what we in in that first paper, sorry, the one in Nature Communications. What we did is we took three trials, so we took a device, so this particular device was a device called pipeline endovascular device, which is a Medtronic device, and we created um, a digital copy of this, of a device, and then we had a library of anatomical models of multiple patients that came from a library that we have and that we post-process. And then we and I'll go in more detail, but we, we went from those images, we created the anatomical models, we did models of the flow, of the, of the blood flow, and we also developed a model of the blood coagulation cascade that tells you how, when you slow down the flow clots, which is what I mentioned earlier that is important, what we are targeting at the end. So we have this full model, and also we had a separate model based on wearable sensors that actually uh, what it does is, is tries to capture the variability of physiological variables, like, for instance, what is your heart rate, your blood pressure. So <clears throat> what we did is we took the, those data sets and we created basically a library of digital twins. We call this in the automobile industry and the, and the built environment. We tend to call them in the healthcare domain, we tend to call them virtual patients, right? And so these virtual patients are like an animal model is a simplification of the complexity. Some people ask me, you know, but your virtual patients, you know, is the whole body, no, no, is the part of interest, right? But is sufficiently simple so that is manageable, but not simpler than in principle you expect, you know, that, that is required. And then what you can develop is algorithms that do a virtual implantation of the device in that anatomy, that is a patient-specific anatomy, and then you put physiological conditions, so the, the heart rate and the blood pressure that is consistent with that age and sex of patient, and you then compute solve the, for the flow before and after putting the device. So you can look at the flow reduction and a number of measures from hemodynamics, and then you can solve the biochemistry and look at the composition of the clot in different in different locations of the uh, in, in different aneurysms. So. If you can picture in your in, in your mind this, this is like having like a massive cube of experiments, of virtual experiments, where in one dimension you have the anatomy, in another dimension you have the physiology, the, the physiological regime, and in another dimension you have, for instance, the device design. And in this big matrix, every node corresponds to 
one device implanted in a particular subject with a particular physiological regime. So that becomes like a virtual population where we can test these devices' computation. Now, is this why this is um, useful? Because imagine I tell you that the three trials that we compared against, we compared to three trials that were done previously to our study from the same device in different parts of the world. Each of these trials was between 110 and 200 patients not big trials, they took between six and eight years from conception of the trial to the publication, and six years of those eight years were for the recruitment of the patients, mm. right? So that means that before you know the quality of those devices, at least you need to wait for six, seven years, eight years. With the pace of development of the technology, that means that for that long, we are putting devices that we really don't know how they're working, and also that if you want to wait to know, you're delaying the technology benefiting patients as well, right? And if-, now, if I've got a quick question, Alex. Yeah. So um, I just want to go into the mechanics of the virtual patient um, yeah. very quickly. So um, one could imagine there is sort of CFT, computational um, fluid dynamics, um, models that we can deploy just like we do in, in physical systems. Uh, but this uh, data that you're getting from patients, it also allows some sort of deep learning, uh, potentially unsupervised deep learning type techniques, right? So are you sort of combining um, machine deep learning techniques with sort of uh, mathematics of CFD and FEM to actually create that virtual patient? So what's the, what's the mechanics that you go through? So that's a, that's a great question and something we are we are working at the moment. So, so the, the the particular paper that uh, we are talking about didn't didn't do any deep learning for the simulations. It did utilize deep learning for the segmentation of the images, so for the structure anatomy of the of the vessels from the images, but not for the numerics. However, one uh, area that is very very exciting and pioneered, you know, by uh, Professor George Kanedakis from from um, Brown is what is known as as physics-informed neural networks. And these are neural networks where um, you do more than, say, a standard deep learning. So in a deep learning setting, in a basic deep learning setting, you could say, well, if I give you thousands of geometries and for each of those geometries I give you the fluid dynamics, you could learn a mapping between the geometry and the flow. And and then if I give you a new geometry, you can more or less predict the flow with that, right? The problem with that approach, there's a number of problems with this approach, but one of them is that there is nothing that will ensure you that when I give you a new geometry, the flow that you give me back fulfills the physics. Because that network doesn't know about Navier-Stokes, doesn't know about <laughs> observations and so on. In principle, it will learn the mapping, but we know the data will have noise, will have errors, and that will end up making its way as well in terms of certain conservations that are not fulfilled and so on. So what George and others have come up with is ideas to incorporate the physics in the loss function, so in the, in the objective function of the deep learning, so that basically when, when you do the learning process, you learn to replicate, but also you impose a penalty term that doesn't allow the flow not to fulfill the Navier-Stokes equations fundamentally. And so what you end up is with something that is like a deep learning technique in the sense that, you know, it's equally fast and so on, but at the same time, that's uh, is guaranteed that the physics are, are uh, satisfied. And there is a number of variants. Uh, this is kind of the, 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 the first ap approach they proposed a number of years ago. And this is becoming very popular because you could think this more generally than physics. Anywhere where you have a domain knowledge in form of analytic equations, you could imagine doing the same where you put penalty terms that penalize the, the deviation from those, um, you know, the, from the satisfaction from those equations that, that you know needs to be met, right? Um, this is something that we are starting to look now because um, when you get excited with this approach, <laughs> The, the project in silico trials, you can very quickly, you know, blow the number of simulations they need to run. Imagine you want to run 10,000 geometries 
at you know a hundred different physiological regimes over a parametric sweep of one parameter over you know a hundred steps you made the calculation and you want to have navigated stokes in transient flow that can become quite complex um and 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 we are starting to look at ways that you can accelerate uh, that as well um there, there are other reasons why you may want to do this but this is just a one easy to 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 mention right so so what what we what we do in in this um what, what we did in this study was to generate the simulations of the flow for all of these different scenarios and then um we had to compare with the conventional trial now how do clinicians what is the objective function of a clinician right when they try to optimize treatment so at one level what they want is maximize survival minimize complications and comorbidities but these are things which are difficult to measure until you wait a certain amount of time after the treatment has happened right so what people tend to do is to find what clinicians do is is find a, like a proxy to that which is the one that is utilized during the intervention and the proxy for this usually is what is called angiographic occlusion which means that after they have treated the aneurysm they will do a flush of a contrast agent of iodinated contrast agent under image guidance and they will see the flow of that uh, contrast passing through the vessels very much like when we do ink experiments in fluid dynamics right to, to see the dilution and the, and the transport right of, of that ink so this is like a well it's an ink effectively but two, two x rays so it's, it's already opaque this this iodinated contrast agent <clears throat> and what you check is that there is no contrast getting into the vessel in, into the aneurysm so that it flushes through the vessel and, and disappears and is then released through the kidneys and so on right now the problem is that that doesn't tell you anything about the quality of the clot that you have created it could be that is jelly and enough to to sustain the flow of the contrast and not let it match in but then two or three days later somehow reopens and therefore while people measure down the line death it's not very clear or survival it's not very clear why it survived or why it died necessarily and what was the underlying mechanism and the root cause of that problem so one of the advantages of in silico trials is that it forces you to specify your assumptions through the model that you utilize and also it gives you like a white box analysis about what's happening so what one of um, my students developed so Ali Ali Sarami developed is a model of blood clotting that is able to tell the type of clot that is being formed and there are two types of clot one which is called white clot and another one that is called red clot the red clot in in, in lay terms is like a jelly clot that doesn't have a lot of um, fiber in it so it's, it's, it's like a material that is not fiber reinforced so to say so it's jelly and it can redilute potentially while the other type of clot the white clot is a clot that is um, permeated through fibrin inside and somehow has a much more solid consistency so the white clot is a good clot so to say while the red clot can also prevent contrast getting through but it's not necessarily uh, you know a good one so what what this model from Ali can do is predict the proportions of these types of clots within the aneurysm after the intervention and then we use that as a criteria to then estimate angiographic occlusion and and also to correlate with the studies that, that these uh, other co uh, colleagues uh, have done and what we observe is that we can predict to a five percent accuracy the angiographic occlusion rate from these other studies now these studies took six to eight years we could do these simulations with the number of computational power we had which of course is valuable that you could accelerate but we took us three months um and it probably you know required two or three people working full-time for those three months so if you put into into perspective that with the 20 to 40 million that those trials would have cost is a massive reduction what i'm not telling you fully is that it probably took about six to eight years to develop the models in the first place but the advantage is that those well develop and validate them so that you can trust the numbers that come out right but the advantage is that that model can be reutilized for multiple devices while 
each of these three trials was for the same device and each of them had to be done almost to, to, to sort of replicate the results from the other ones and make sure that we had sufficient evidence. And every time, every time you're collecting more data, and so uh, as you look forward, there, there is going to be more and more historical information. Uh, again, you know, going back to uh, deep learning approaches, unsupervised approaches, there might be sort of foundational generalizability uh, in that data. You could potentially build back up some sort of heuristic over time. Uh, that makes it makes the whole process potentially a lot easier. Obviously, there is always a always a downside to human generated heuristic. Um, we are almost always wrong, uh, but uh, it might uh, it might help us at least to think about the problem differently. Absolutely, and but also the other point you're highlighting as well, Jill, is that there is um, on the one side the, 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 there are two types of models. There are um, in this context, at least, one that is what we what I tend to call me uh, mechanistic models. Those are those that are built on first principles, uh, like you know a model based on Navier-Stokes, and those are top down. They start by the principle, by the wisdom, and they deliver simulated data. But then you also have phenomenological models, which are models where you don't understand necessarily the mechanisms, but you have a lot of data. So you start from the data and you try to abstract information, knowledge, and wisdom, which is replicated knowledge, right? So this goes bottom-up, while the other ones go top-down. And I think the models you were talking about, building heuristics, is based on bottom-up models. Um, these ones that I was also mentioning are also potentially top-down. And the advantage is that with these top-down sort of mechanistic-driven models, you're able to create the scenarios that maybe you haven't yet observed. Um, for instance, one of the one of the um, things that this paper also demonstrates is that so so the, basically what we showed in summary in this paper is a that we could replicate the same results from these three conventional trials to a five percent accuracy, and I also we also demonstrated that these um, that we could provide new insights that those trials didn't provide and wouldn't have been able to provide. One of the examples of those insights was the fact that it was known in the it is known clinically that if you have an aneurysm that is on the side of a vessel, but the aneurysm also has a side branch or, or a side branch that is downstream from the from the aneurysm, very close to the aneurysm, is not convenient to put a stent in those. And people don't, didn't quite really understand why that was the case. Mm. But uh, and and but is there is anecdotal evidence that that's you know you you shouldn't do that. What we found is that in all the aneurysms with side branches that we had in our database, those that corresponding to people with hypertension, and we were able to produce for every geometry both a normal tensive and a hypertensive phenotype, but for all the hypertensives, those vessels, those side branching vessels downstream from the aneurysm would eventually clot as well. So you were compromising their patency. And as a consequence, you were producing an ischemic stroke downstream in that part of the brain. So we think that this is um, this is fundamentally the mechanism that is, is happening there. While it's interesting that in the same geometry, the same anatomy, but if you have a normotensive condition, that wasn't happening. Now, in this particular case, I wouldn't suggest that then you can treat those because possibly those patients will undergo, uh, you know, will end up having a hypertension at some point in their life. But imagine that we have now certain conditions where perhaps we are very conservatively not treating with solutions that are available, if we could identify that actually the reason why we are trying to prevent everybody to have that, everybody with that characteristic to have that, that particular treatment only applies to a subpopulation, but another subpopulation actually could, could do well. Yes. So all of a sudden you have a solution for them without necessarily even to develop a new device. Yeah, that again goes to sort of personalized medicine. I was also thinking, Alex, that as, as robotic surgery takes off, this might even become sort of a pre-processing step, right? Um, it's not. Uh, it's not that everything is known. Uh, you know, optimum uh, insertion angle or, or everything else could be very patient-specific. So you go through some sort of a pre-processing simulation modeling of the patient that then guides the the, the robotic uh, surgery uh, surgery machine to optimally uh, make that procedure happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. And 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 in a sense, what what these also can these sort of more mechanistic models can provide you insights on on responses that organs may have to the robotic interaction with them. That uh, as I, as I was alluding before, that may not be necessarily uh, things you've seen before, because there are new there are new situations that are created by the techno the a new technology being available. So, for instance, um, you know, is this particular uh, biopsy, um, you know, needle or biopsy instrument gonna, you know, perforate part of the organ that you're not aiming at um, because of the, you know, the stiffness of, of of the needle itself versus the stiffness of the of the material, um, and or or for instance, you know, if you do, if you have um, an, a scenario where you are willing to do a particular resection. Um, what side effects it will have. So I, I was um, talking a few weeks ago with one of my colleagues that was saying that when they need to do a resection of certain part of the of the gut in a, in a, in a cancer, in a gut cancer, uh, sometimes there is a number of vessels which are com coming up from the side of that gut that actually, um, you know, are, are, are compromised when you remove that bit. And to understand um, whether the remaining parts are going to be sufficiently irrigated to maintain to maintain a healthy piece of gut um, is critical as well. So, so can you explore multiple scenarios of treatment so that your robot could go and do precisely the intervention you're interested in? I, th I think these approaches will be particularly useful for the planning stage and for the scenario planning stage, while I think robotics will be particularly useful in executing, particularly when, when that sort of a scenario is, is, is critical or is delicate or has different difficult access um, yeah, I, I can see this, Alex. You know, um, we create a pers personal machine for an individual. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we are anywhere close to that yet, but uh, and you, you let the machine go to the future. And so, in essence, you know, we can see what would happen to that individual five years from now. And that should guide us in terms of. Uh, proactive intervention in terms of lifestyle, medication, whatever it may be, right? You, in, in other words, you could potentially accelerate aging of the model and, and get feedbacks uh, from, from an old model back to the individual. Well, that, that, that's exactly the, the sort of vision behind one of the scenarios that I was alluding before, that is how do you know the response of this device 15 years from now. Um, because if you were to run a trial, that would be a very long one, right? And a very expensive one, and also probably completely irrelevant to know in 15 years whether devices we implanted now are good or not. Um, it's probably the technology has moved on, and the problem you have, the problem will be for those who that technology was implanted in the past. So you want to know that at the point of implantation, ideally, not down the line. Um, and, and for that, you need not only models of the devices and models of the um, anatomy and the physiology, but also models of the aging process, uh, models of remodeling. So for instance, um, in cardiac applications, you may put, for instance, cardiac valves or, or, or cardiac pacemakers. And what they do is they, either synchronize the, the heart if it's a pacing type device or they they allow flow to to you know flow to, to the heart pump properly and as a consequence the muscle of the heart also responds by regrowing its muscle in the right places so that's what we call remodeling um so understanding whether your device will induce a remodeling which is as you want or as you expect is important let me give you an example there was a few years ago <clears throat> a particular type of a bone implant that was utilized that that implant you know was like a piece of metal put in you know in the in the femur and then um in in the femur head so it was bringing these two pieces together so when you had a femoral fracture now of course you want a very strong piece of metal right because you want that to stick and to get in place but what was then understood is that by putting that piece of metal, you were completely changing the loading conditions of the bone. And actually, one of the things that makes the bone have the shape and the structure it has is the loadings that evolutionary we have created 
um, by the way we walk, but also for a particular individual related to exercise. So when you change that, all of a sudden you start weakening parts of the bone that were okay. And that actually may, may lead to down the line a fracture, not in the in the metal piece, but in, in the surrounding um, you know, peri, peri implant, implant um, area. So um, understanding in that case, boundary modeling is quite an important element and understanding what sort of drivers of stress is. And could you, for instance, develop you know, implants that actually is, provide the right stimulus to bone so that there is a further growth into the right direction rather than a weakening? Yeah. Um, sort of adaptive, adaptive implants, right? Um, if the implant is intelligent enough to understand what's happening in the neighborhood, uh, and if it's able to change its own characteristics in response, then then you have sort of an intelligent adaptive implant. Yes, I mean that that's one step further in a sense because um, if we were able to have a well-designed implant, even if it's not yet intelligent, right, that 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 is able to understand the way it needs to be designed to minimize you know this weakening effect that i was referring but of course if you understand it you can go one step beyond and say well what can i play with the biology and with the physics and somehow make it play on on, on the favor of the patient by growing in the right in the right position so for instance there is another type of implants for um, replacement um, hip surgery so these are patients that already had um, a hip prosthesis but then the, the prosthesis breaks. And the problem is you had to drill holes and make, you know, loose bone to put that first implant. A second implant is very difficult to put, right? <clears throat> and it's very, very complex. So what would happen if instead of putting the first implant to be a pure metallic one, you create more like an, a scaffold where the bone sort of ingrows into that scaffold and produces, so you grow the amount of bone rather than you reduce the amount of it, right? Um, so all of these is also pointing to another uh, aspect, Jill, that I think is quite an important trend nowadays, is that we do have devices, uh, sorry, the medical technology in general, not even devices, more broadly, is, is becoming more and more complex. So, you know, we, we tend to think about an implant as a piece of metal or a piece of, but what about if this is now an implant that has a piece of metal, some sensor that, you know, sends signals out to some sort of Bluetooth-like uh, capture, so you can do some AI on that signal. And at the same time, it has some coating which is biochemis biochemically active to promote bone growth or you know whatever biological process. The more complex we do these devices, the more complex the trials will be as well, because the variables that you need to be designing or you need to be testing are going to become really, really problematic. And and also the, the amount of unexpected or unintended consequences when you go back to the whole population will, will explode. And that's why I think we will need to be thinking really different ways um, of, of designing um, that, you know, that are in a sense more, more at, the, at the stature of the technology and the possibilities we have nowadays. Um, and, and, and your approach, Alex, running trials in silico, I think from my perspective, it's only only way forward uh, as things get more complex, as sort of the design space explodes uh, in terms of alternatives, we can't really run clinical trials uh, against that design space. It's just it's just too huge a design space, right? So it's too too expensive. And so, uh, and you know, the other thing I think you mentioned, you know, think about animal trials. Um, I haven't looked at the data recently, but 15, 20 years ago, you know, it used to be just 10, 15% correlation between animal models and human models. And it, it's very debatable if those animal experiments actually giving us any information from, from a human trial perspective, right? But we go through the we go through the steps because that's what the regulator has put in place. Uh, but all those things need to be questioned, I think. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the good thing is, I think regulators are starting to to see the importance of that because they, they also understand that it's, it's financially unfeasible to maintain, to maintain a healthcare system 
because you know all these R and D, the costs are roll out in the price, right? So these stands that coil that, that cost a thousand pounds each of them, is not that a piece of metal costs that amount of money, even if it's made of nitinol or whatever material. Is the R and D that is behind to get to that point, and all the liability behind when that device sort of fails and so on. <clears throat> but particularly, FDA is being really, really um, at the avant-garde of all this area, and there has been quite a lot of work by a number of colleagues in 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 there and they recently you know they they created the new office of regulatory science uh, that is looking into all of these areas january this year there was a publication for um <clears throat> in in futures areas for for regulatory science that that um is quite enlightening and you know in silicotra is only one aspect of the wider gamut of of technologies um for regulatory science that are coming up um but i think you know, and, and, and what is working is partnerships between industry, academia, and regulators. And at the moment, we are actually developing <clears throat> a similar community in, in the UK. So we, we created a few days actually ago uh, on a Slack channel called uh, InSilicoUKSlack.com that actually um, people can sign up to it. And where we're trying to bring the community together to think through what are the biggest challenges, what are things that require new science to be developed, but also what are the low-hanging fruits where we can already leverage uh, evidence. Um, MDIC, the Medical Device Innovation Consortium in the US, uh, ran a few a few years ago um, a survey identifying the biggest um, roadblocks for computational modeling and simulation. In, in the US, they tend to call it computational modeling and simulation, while in Europe, we tend to call it a bit in silicon modeling, but it's essentially the same idea. <clears throat> and the, the, by large, the biggest roadblock for industry, academia, is the regulatory uncertainty. And this was about 75% of the respondents were, were uh, alluding to that, while all the other things, including, you know, return on investments, expertise, availability, you know, the level of maturity of the technologies were things that were ranking only in, you know, 25 to 35, 40, 40, 40 plus percent. So something that the regulators some and some are doing that and, and and others are starting to get into that direction is uh work also with with the standardization bodies to to define best practices so at least we start generating criteria, um you know more, more homogeneity in the way we we produce those models so for instance the american uh, society for mechanical engineering ASME, has developed a standard called bnb40 that is all about um based on risk assessment on maturity of models for in silico trials so the same way that you have kind of technology readiness levels can you have something that is more like a, a model maturity level that gives you a sense about the level of validation behind it and the level of um you know of confidence that you have built and the level of risks that you are accepting if you use that model to take regulatory decisions down the line uh, we, we ran out of time, Alex, but I had, uh, I wanted to really get to your other two papers, <laughs> the, the review paper on uh, virtual clinical trials in medical imaging and the, and the data uh, from the Biobank in UK. Um, I wondered, Alex, if you can afford the time to perhaps come back for another session at some point? Absolutely. That's, that's, uh, that's, that would be a pleasure. And in any case, to, to give you sort of a nugget about how those link, the idea, the, the paper on the UK Biobank, which we can discuss in a bit more detail separately, but the idea is that there is a number of population imaging studies where we are able to now image large, very, very large cohorts. And when I'm saying very, very large, I'm talking about 100,000 subjects of a population. And therefore, you have two or three orders of magnitude larger cohorts than any conventional trial. And also without any of the biases, the, the inclusion biases that you will have in a normal trial. And we are starting to build models based on those populations. And the other one connected more with imaging trials is that when I talk about devices, don't think only in terms of implants. There is also pharma, although I'm personally not working in that space. But another area where I'm also very interested in is imaging systems as a device as well. So for instance, can you create a model of the anatomy and a model of the physics of image acquisition so that you could, for instance, test different sizes and shapes of tumors and what would be the, the minimum size below which you wouldn't be able to see that tumor anymore 
no matter how you configure your hardware, for instance. And the other the other paper that uh, that I was referring to was was in that direction, but it was more to highlight that there is quite a bit of diversity, yeah. and I didn't want um, you know our listeners to 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 get only one particular device or this is only working in one particular domain. It's just that it's a very vast area, and uh, some of us have our own specialties, right? But but it, the potential is really really vast. Yeah, it'll be great, Alex. I would love to go through the review paper in, in details, uh, all the things that you talk about there. So, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Alex. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.